Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio um, for another week of um, radio, um, live radio in lockdown. Um, so for those who probably haven't been following announcements, the lockdown in Victoria has been, um, or in Melbourne at least, has been extended for another week. And um, so just to introduce the presenters today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. Howdy. Yeah. So, um, wanted to go into, I want to just first, um, before we go into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. So the first kind of news story I kind of want to go cover is in response to the lockdown, um, to the um, two-week lockdown in the city of Melbourne, uh, in Victoria, um, the federal government has um, announced a kind of support kind of pa- um, payment for workers who have been impacted um, by the one-week kind of lockdown. And basically, the, the system basically is. If you have worked, if you have would have normally worked more than 20 hours a week, you can apply for a $500 payment from this Tuesday. If you work less than 20 um, hours a week, um, you can apply for a $325 payment. Now, the other, um, some of the other conditions of this payment is that um, you can't, um, you cannot be on Centrelink, a, a fact which I think is very. Um, questionable, um, and I'll go into a bit into that later. Um, the other condition is you can't have more than ten thousand dollars in assets, or i.e., ten more than ten thousand dollars in savings. So if you have more than ten thousand dollars in your bank account, you are not able to apply. Um, you are not eligible for the payment. Um, and but aside from that, I think just from my reading of all the kind of news, it doesn't seem to be that conditional in terms of like basically I think you just have to self-report um, that you have kind of lost income, um, outline the number of hours you worked and then probably put down your workplace, etc. and that's how you get the payout. But we'll find out um, how condi- how strict some of these conditions are um, when, when the actual kind of form and thing gets up online on Tuesday. But having – talking – Doing a bit of a, I guess, of a, of an analysis of, of this announcement. I mean, in some ways, the announcement is good in a sense that at least, um, workers who have been impacted by lockdown at least have something. But I'll just say that I think it is really completely inadequate. And I guess to, to address some of the, some of the problems with it, I mean, I think the fact that, um, 
you know, this is something that mo- most mainstream outlets won't really criticise the government for, but I actually think it's a bit outrageous that people on Centrelink uh, cannot get access to the emergency payment. Um, because you actually have to consider the situation for a lot of people on Centrelink. A lot of people on Centrelink um, work casual jobs. Um, mm, underemployed. Underemployed and work up to like six to ten hours or mm. Or possibly more, um, but but they a lot of a lot of people on Centrelink actually live off the fact that they have to get they get an extra little bit of income, mm. and the fact that the government is not compensating um, those who are affected in any way who are on Centrelink is I think very uh, a big issue. The second issue is the in other- many cases if you're on Centrelink that'll be enough to pay like for your rent and maybe a tiny bit of food on top of that. So your casual work hours on top of that is what allows you to pay your food and your bills. Mm. So if you get cut off from that, okay, you can still kind of pay your rent, but you can't eat or you've just got to live on like two-minute noodles for the next month or something. Mm. Until the lockdown ends and then hope that work picks up again. But, of course, Mm. the other kind of issue as well is... I think this, the way this emergency payment has, has been designed doesn't actually take, I think, into account the full kind of economic kind of impact of the lockdown in a sense that basically, for workers, that is, um, because basically, um, it appears to me that only people who are living in metropolitan Melbourne can apply for the payment. And of course, the payment has been implemented to be um, has been implemented in a way that anyone who lives in a hotspot zone, like let's say you're in New South Wales and there is a stage, there's like a COVID hotspot declared in the part that you live, which um, requires you to self-isolate. Mm, work on the southeast coast. Yeah, southeast coast, you're, you're able to kind of apply for the payment. But on the other hand, you have to think about who is excluded from this because I know from like this Friday, restrictions are going to be eased in regional Victoria, hmm. but they're going to be um, eased at a pretty, you know, staggered kind of rate. So basically, you can only um, hospital um, hospitality venues and stuff can um, will not be able to go back to full capacity. And so, what does that I guess mean for um, hospitality workers in regional Victoria? under the kind of rules that the government has kind of set up, they're not actually going to be eligible for the payment. Hmm. And I think actually just it's actually kind of like a kind of classic kind of, you know, the, the way the government is kind of, um, federal government is operating is, is it's always like they always have to put all this kind of bureaucratic red tape on on whether someone um, is eligible to get government support, especially when in the event that they actually that they actually do need it. And in fact, actually, a simpler solution for um, the government in in a lot of cases would actually be be possible. Would actually be reinstating JobKeeper, mm. um, for example. Uh, the second solution would have been just actually increasing the JobSeeker rate back to what it was. And in fact, they should actually increase it back to what the um, to the COVID supplement rate, but make that permanent. Mm. Um, and and there's. And I think, you know, that those, those are some of the kind of key demands that, you know, um, left-wing unions like um, retail and fast food workers union, um, the Victorian Trades Hall, the trade union movement has been arguing for um, while um, during, in the, over, over the course of this lockdown. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think 
back when the back when the first lockdown happened, you know, a bit over a year ago, the whole issue was that you, you had unions um, pressing pressing for a wage subsidy and pressing for an increase to Centrelink because, in the absence of those measures. Well, A, it creates a serious economic problem because you've got a, a, a huge hollowing out of demand. You've got hundreds of thousands of people who can no longer afford to buy their necessities and pay for bills and rent, and that flows onto the rest of the economy. So that's one big problem. But the other problem is it creates a perverse incentive for people who should be staying home and locking down to be going to work. Now, obviously, with hospitality, there's lockdowns and so on, but there is some flexibility here. And for people who should be staying home at the moment, if they have any symptoms, they should be getting tested and staying home. If they are not eligible for these payments and they're in absolute poverty, they are going to be stuck with this choice. Do I go to work even though I've got some symptoms or do I stay home because I know that that's the right thing to do, but that's just going to further exacerbate my <laughs> serious poverty that I'm in. So this this was a, a key part of the problem. If you want people to stay home if they've got any suspicion that they're sick, there's got to be support in place. And this is like Groundhog Day. It's like we're going back to you know the lesson that should have been learned very clearly last year these support measures are important because they allow people to stay home and that's what's needed to get the virus under control. Hmm. And I think one of the kind of interesting things about this announcement is, I guess, in the lead-up um, to this announcement that the federal government would be announcing this inadequate kind of support kind of payment, is I remember I'm, I was reading kind of reports from the Morrison government. So the, the Scott Morrison was, um, when this lockdown first happened um, last week, there was this sort of like, you know, voice of kind of support, you know, Victoria, yep, Victoria is good to go to lockdown. Um, hopefully it ends as soon as possible so uh, Victorians can go back to work, can children can go back to school. But there was kind of an interesting kind of thing basically um, the kind of, I think it was kind of interesting seeing the kind of, the type of kind of resistance. And in fact, there is actually still kind of a level of resistance to this because even though the government, the federal government has announced this support payment, there's a lot of, um, ragueness about, and this is something we'll be discussing a bit, um, this denial will be, this is a dynamic, dynamic we'll be discussing, um, in our first interview with, um, the Assistant Secretary of the Korean Allied Health Professionals, um, is that basically, um, um, basically the, the government has, um, the government has basically sort of tried to make it, um, when it comes to the support payment, they're quite vague on who is actually going to be paying for it, whether is it going to be the federal government or going to be the state government. And so basically there's been all this sort of blaming and shaming with the, with basically the state government complaining about the federal government and the federal government complaining about the state government and the federal government, of course, not taking because the federal government is the higher body than the state government, not necessarily wanting to take any responsibility. And, of course, there, there was a bit of a quote from Scott Morrison that I read in the ABC that basically Scott Morrison basically argued, um, this is before he announced the emergency sort of payment, mm. that he didn't want to establish any incentives 
for the states to be able to go into lockdown, which I think is actually um, says everything I think about the Morrison government. Um, they're more concerned about the economy over that over that of. People. Yeah, look as if state governments are dull bludgers and they're they're just faking a COVID outbreak so that they can, you know, turn on the taps of federal government support. What a ludicrous idea. Yeah, so that's a ridiculous that, notion. That, I think you've kind of nailed it there, kind of saying that's sort of what I was trying to sort of get into because that is exactly how the <laughs> federal like government calling, is acting. It's basically like calling state governments dull bludgers. Yeah, exactly. It exactly is. And of course, we know that these COVID outbreaks um, are going to be happening um, periodically um, until we are fully, um, until we have a, a full vaccination rollout. Mm. And in fact, it's just going to be a necessary part of life. These kind of quick, quick, short um, lockdowns. Some might last longer than others. Mm. Um, some they might last two weeks. Some might last four weeks. Some might last five, one week, or some might last four days. Mm. But it's going to be a necessary kind of component. And um, the federal government, it is actually the federal government's responsibility to actually step in um, and actually support uh, the state governments when they do this and not have this whole well, thing about... Inf- yeah, the, the other thing that ScoMo said this week is that the federal government wants to negotiate or maybe will be in charge of supporting households and the state governments will be in charge of supporting businesses and kind of like trying to shift some of the costs of support packages onto state governments. That's really bad because the federal government has access to the Reserve Bank. The federal government can basically run deficits and print money. State governments can't do that. State governments can borrow money from private banks, but they can't run deficits like the federal government can. So... It's a different situation. Basically, the, the federal government can kind of like print money and it doesn't matter if that money gets repaid or not later. State mm. governments can't do that. It creates serious debt problems for state governments. So it's absolutely irresponsible for the federal government to be trying to push some of the cost onto state governments. Mm. And, of course, the federal government also wants to push the costs on to the worst, um, the worst, which is on us ordinary people themselves. Mm. But, mm. For, but they, uh, but they, but they, yeah. But basically, it's it's all a kind of indication of not take, wanting to take responsibility for anything. Anyway, um, we might um, we're running a bit out, out of time, so we'll, we'll go we'll conclude this kind of discussion. But we'll be discussing more of it in our first interview for the program. Um, so I'll just play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, on the line, we have Andrew Hewitt, who is the Assistant Secretary of Allied Health Professionals Association. Morning, Jacob. All right, so I guess the kind of first question I'm going to ask, we're wanting to sort of have a bit of, I guess, a kind of discussion to get a bit of a kind of um, perspective from healthcare workers on, I guess, the st- on the he- state of the healthcare system, and I guess to kind of start off, given the the lockdown that's currently happening occurring in Melbourne or Victoria, I mean, in in general, the the, the we can't the lockdown is going to be eased in regional Victoria today. But to recap from kind of last year, there were a number of criticisms raised about the state of the Victorian healthcare system in terms of its handling of COVID-19, in terms of contract tracing, its overall capacity. Um, coming, coming into now, I guess has there really been, has there been any sort of changes and improvements in terms of the status of Victorian's healthcare, state healthcare system compared to now? Yeah, no, to put it bluntly, uh, Victoria got pretty burnt in 2020. Um, Wave one was, you know, it was really a test and a, and a warning of what was to come, and Victoria responded pretty well initially, but the, the foot was taken off the gas um, between wave one and two, and there was, you know, it was pretty clear that Australia felt like it dodged a bullet after the, the first wave, while Europe and, and the Americas were, you know, all suffering horrendously, uh, and there was a you know, degree of complacency in Australia and in, in Victoria in particular. I mean, for example, between wave one and two in, in May, the Victorian government allocated um, uh, uh, what they called the healthcare workers, um, well, healthcare heroes reward. They, they put in $850,000 into a, a wellbeing centre, you know, to reward the healthcare workers for the hard work during, during wave one. And, and it was clearly they thought it was all over. And then when wave two hit, uh, we were nowhere adequately adequately prepared. And within a few weeks, the, the contact traces, you know, were, they were getting overwhelmed. The site testing sites were getting flooded. Um, it was taking t- a long time to get results back. And, you know, with such an infectious virus, it was it was spreading faster than they could, could keep up with. Um, you know, at that time, the unions were calling for recognition of airborne spread and, and better PPE and better protection for healthcare workers, um, but they were relying on the outdated science from the Commonwealth and, and an ongoing lack of supplies. And, you know, they should have been stockpiling like crazy after Wave 1, and they, they should have been looking at what was going on in places like Taiwan and Singapore and South Korea. You know, it all done really well and... And they were all using higher levels of protection for the healthcare workers. It pretty much as a consequence, we started to see large numbers of healthcare workers and, and aged care workers getting infected in the workplace. And in the end, the healthcare workers' infections pretty much prolonged the lockdown of wave two, you know, by at least by weeks. Mm. Um, but as a consequence, Victoria, they, they started to learn from their mistakes and they set up uh, the Healthcare Work Infection Prevention and Wellbeing Task Force in August. And then they started to, they, they officially recognised uh, airborne spread. They were uh, ahead of all of the other uh, jurisdictions in that respect in Australia and, um, and, and they've, they've progressed on and on from that and they uh, they've done um, really well in the last, you know, last couple of lockdowns, the last couple of outbreaks. Um, they've learnt from last year, and it's been a long, slow process. But um, you know, they're, they're much better prepared now, and they're in a much better situation. And, and now that we've got in Victoria the highest standards of protection in both in the health and the hotel quarantine settings in Australia, um, we've just been cursed with bad luck now in the outbreaks. But you know, uh, I just think overall they really have improved their game. Hmm. And I guess now that gets into um, into more the kind of federal government's um, kind of. Um, whole um whole deal into this and i guess i want to kind of hear your kind of comments on the whole 
federal government's kind of vaccination rollout, um, which has been receiving uh, a lot of criticisms, um, especially in terms of this current outbreak. And the, the current lockdown is arguably would have been avoided if um, the vaccination pro- um, rollout was far more advanced than what it is right now. So I'm kind of hear- interested in hearing from a kind of healthcare workers kind of perspective, your, I guess, the comments on, on that rollout. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would have to say the federal vaccination program has just been a disaster, really. And um, they were late to get their order in. They, they put too many eggs in one basket, and you know they were relying on the Queensland University option. And then when that failed, they they didn't really um, adjust accordingly. Um, apparently, they screwed up the the offer that they had from Pfizer back in June or July last year for you know a comprehensive vaccination program. Um, they they failed to order enough of the mRNA um, style vaccination. Um, they spent millions contracting out private companies to vaccinate the aged care and disability sector, and that's just, as we've seen recently, has been an absolute disaster. Uh, and the states had to bail them out. Mm. Um, there's been no transparency around the whole thing. Um, you know, the mess- their messaging around the AstraZeneca has been been a failure, and that's created a, you know a huge degree of fear and and, and um, hesitancy. Um, you know, and in a uh, almost an age discrimination process now, where the, uh, the old, uh, anyone over fifty you can't access it. Um, it's just been, you know, uh, a disaster from start to finish. Um, g'day, Andrew. This is Zane here, the other host. Um, I was just curious um, why I was talking to my partner the other day, and she said if there was going to be mass vaccination of the residents of aged care homes, why would the staff not be vaccinated at the same time? Like, How is it possible that such a small percentage, somewhere around 10% of aged care health workers have been vaccinated, and such a huge proportion are yet to be vaccinated? Uh, it, it, that you know, goes to what I was just saying then about the whole, the whole process has been a disaster. They've, they've contracted it out rather than relying on the, the people who are already um, expert at the, in these... I mean. The states have got the vaccination programs that they could have accessed. Um, most of aged care centres in Victoria fall under the federal government control and, and they have responsibility for them. Um, the, the residents and the aged care workers, they actually fell under the, the Phase 1A category of their, their own, of the federal government um, schedule for the vaccination program, yet here we are you know, four months in and many facilities that haven't even started to get vaccinated. And, and as you were saying, you know, in some senses they'd, they'd be vaccinating the residents but not the staff and they were telling, you know, basically if there was some left over at the end of the day then they would get the staff vaccinated with what's left over. They've just, it's just been an, an appalling failure from start to finish. Hmm. And I guess just a, a more kind of specific question is um, given, I guess, with that, with I guess that kind of recent report finding that less than 10% of aged care workers have been vaccinated, which you've kind of covered quite well, but I guess, I mean, is there, what is, I guess, the situation with kind of like other areas of healthcare in terms of kind of like vaccination rates? Because I guess my understanding was, um, in terms of the phase we're currently in, um, I, I recall that the phase, um, will meant basically as priority healthcare workers were kind of like the essential kind of workers that were going to be vaccinated first. And I guess what is kind of that situation kind of there for other areas of healthcare? What's going on in, in aged care is, is mirrored very closely in disability sector. Um, they've really left them to their own devices as well, and that's and that's a real failing and it's a, a real problem because they have um, you know high degree of vulnerability if there's an outbreak as well. Uh, you know they've been promising them that they're going to turn up at, at, at homes and vaccinate the, the residents, and 
then they're just not shown up and or they've cancelled and they've, they've uh, rescheduled and uh, and we've seen this week there's been a scramble to try and get the you know disability um, sector uh, both the workers and and the residents uh, vaccinated um, and that's been a uh, you know a, another huge problem. Hmm. And I guess going into I guess um, given that we um, we have you on our, on our program I guess want to have I want to sort of raise. Um, what are some of the kind of general issues, I guess, that have popped up for healthcare workers, especially in terms of, I guess, if in industrial relations, maybe both in the course of this kind of recent lockdown and, I guess, some of the some of the lead up to kind of EBA kind of negotiations that, I guess, are kind of happening, which was all, I guess, in process before this lockdown anyway? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's obviously uh, a very important issue in terms of, you know, the workers themselves in terms of their you know, their pay rates and their protections, but um, it's, okay. I represent the allied health professionals and they're uh, a workforce, so radiographers, um, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, podiatrists, um, and during our, our actual state um, public sector enterprise agreement was up for renewal in the middle of COVID and the state government offered options of rollover, so we, we took that. So that meant that we didn't actually have to put our members um, through an enterprise bargaining process in the middle of the, um, the pandemic in 2020. And uh, as a consequence, we're, we're up for renewal now because it's just a 12-month rollover, basically with a, a 2.5% increase and in all the conditions uh, preserved. But, you know, the, again, getting back to what I was saying before about this, this approach to the, this you know, that the pandemic's over when it's clearly not. Um, we're now seeing, you know, really quite aggressive attacks by the, the employers um, who are the, you know, the public hospitals who are ultimately, you know, em- employed by the state but all run as their own individual entities. Um, there is an aggressive attack on, on, you know, just basic worker rights and it's, it's, it's a really appalling way to reward what they were, you know, lauding last year as their healthcare heroes and, and now we're seeing them, you know, coming after their, uh, their their basic entitlements. And, and on the back of that, we've got the state government who's introduced a wage policy that was at 2% and they've, they've lowered that down to 1.5% at the end of the year and basically told our workers that if you don't get this sorted quickly, then you'll be subjected to that 1.5%, which we just, you know, we just think is an appalling response given what our, our members have been through and given where we're at now. Hmm. And I guess going into, I guess, a more kind of general kind of... Um talking going back to the kind of general kind of political kind of situation is there has been i guess some of the discourse around this recent lockdown from the politicians has been you know there's been a lot of kind of blaming being thrown around um from the state labor government blaming the federal government from in its inadequacy and of course there's also some of that happening vice versa and i guess what i guess want to hear i guess your kind of honest assessment of both the state governments and federal government's response to this re- um, recent lockdown and, you know, covering both uh, uh, um, from a healthcare perspective, but also if you have any kind of broader political comments you want to make, feel free to kind of make um, make your, your comments as well. So, yeah. It's never a good idea to offer a union official an opportunity to give a political opinion. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but uh, no, as I said before, you know, the, the state, you know, they were off to a pretty slow start in 2020, but I have to give them their credit. They've, they've listened um, and the unions have been in, in their ear um, right throughout the whole process and they've given us access and they've, and they've, and they've, 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 they've basically done a really good job, you know, um, coming out of the 2020 into 2021. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm pleased to say that, 
you know, that they've definitely improved. There are still things that we're not happy with, and there are still some gaps that we see need to be addressed. But you know, a bit by um, Victoria is definitely ahead of the rest of Australia in terms of uh, how we're managing uh, the, the whole process. But and you know, the right wing mainstream um, media and the federal government—they've been throwing rocks at the state you know, right throughout the whole process. But this, you know, they've. The state government has, has stood firm and consistently driven the virus down to you know to zero as fast as they they could, and every time it's it's, it's uh, reoccurred, um, they you know the Victorian government has realised that there's no safe way to live with the virus, especially now with the variants you know, uh, circulating. Um, we we have nowhere near enough vaccine protection across you know across the community, and that's again as I said, largely a failing on a federal level rather than a state level. Um, and we've seen what's happened to places like Taiwan, you know, where they were in a safe situation and they were COVID-free and now they're overwhelmed by outbreaks. Um, the, the feds have no real desire to, to chase, um, you know, COVID zero. And, and they seem happy to throw Australians under the bus and, and get their businesses back up and running because they see that as an imperative, um, which is ironic when, you know, when we've shown that if you can, you can be far more economically successful if you actually live without the virus circulating, that you can get things opened up properly. Mm. Um, the, the federal government, that's, it's, it failed us before the pandemic as well. You know, the, the national PPE stockpile was run down to, uh, seriously low levels and, and then coming out of the, the, the bushfires, um, in the summer of 2019, 2020, you know, a lot of the respirators that we've been needing, they, they were used up and the, the federal government didn't re- restock them. Um, the, the federal government guidance is still outdated. It still relies on the old dogma of um, droplet and surface spread, where you know the science now is clearly um, showing that there's uh, aerosol spread. Um, and you know their, their their own infection control expert group, you know, which guides the Commonwealth response, is 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 locked onto this old uh, the old dogma of droplet and surface spread. Where even you know the WHO and the CDC in the US have all moved on and are accepting um, aerosol spread. So. The, the federal federal government's um, really, you know, leaving us exposed and, and leaving us vulnerable still. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for that, um, Andrew. I think that's everything we kind of wanted to cover. But I guess, I mean, do you have any final comments you'd like to kind of make? Uh, yeah, I just think, you know, people need to be aware that this is, could go on for a while yet and they need to be, um, you know, respectful of, of healthcare workers and the job that they're doing recognise that you know, it's been a really tough period and you know and there's still possibly more to come and and hopefully you know we'll get out of this you know, all safe and well at the end all right cheers uh, good luck with the eba campaign too and we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and give our listeners updates yeah thanks Aiden. thanks jacob appreciate the time yep thanks andrew for being on a program cheers all right. Um, you're just listening to um, a discussion with Andrew Hewitt, who is the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. Now, I'll just go first. I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 855 AM. Free CR. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello... You know, all stories may, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of a dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments 
and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. It's um, 7.33 a.m. and... Um, we're going to be discussing just a few kind of news items for our um, next interview for the program. And the first kind of, this first sort of news item I just wanted to kind of bring up, um, and this is sort of something that hasn't really kind of come into the mainstream media as such. But there is a, there is a bit of a push from the Victorian police. But basically, in terms of, um, basically this has been done in response, I think this says, Part of the political context for this has been in response to the lockdown and also some of the protests that have occurred during the lockdown. Um, and basically what the police are trying to kind of implement is they're basically trying to implement a kind of system where essentially um, if you are a journalist who is um, going to a rally and wanting to kind of cover um, the events, um Basically, the police um, have will now will have the right to basically check for your ID or check for which um, press um, press company that you're with um, before. The, um, um, basically, the police have the power to determine whether you are a legitimate journalist or not. And now, there's a lot of problems with this, and I'll kind of go into some of those problems later. But I am I am kind of a bit disappointed from the response that has been. Um, that has been given from um, the Media um, and Entertainment um, Alliance or Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, which is the union that represents um, journalists, because essentially what, um, what, um, what the, essentially what has kind of happened is the MEAA has in some sense in principle support this idea of the Victorian police being able to determine who is, who is not a journalist. And essentially what they've kind of gotten out of uh, the Victorian police is through kind of some talks and negotiations. Um, they've basically, you know, made it so that, you know, an uh, electronic sort of um, identification card of your MEAA membership is sufficient enough um, to present to Victorian police uh, to basically be determined whether you're not a legitimate journalist by the Victorian police. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot of problems with, with that. And now, you know, it's, it's probably better that um, you can... Um, you, um, it's probably good in some sense that you can um, have a union card to, to basically be um, considered a journalist, but in the context of these repressive rules. But I still think the rules as a whole are problematic, and I think it's not the Victorian um, police's um, role to determine who is and who is not a journalist, because in reality, in the age of kind of like social media, um, blogging, and Instagram, 
people actually, anyone can actually be a journalist. Um, you don't have to be working for a major news company like the Herald Sun, um, the Age or ABC to be, um, to be considered a legitimate journalist. You can be just someone who has set up a blog. Um, covering kind of different sort of protests, or you could just be someone who has set up a Facebook page and you take um, photography of, of protests. And of course, under under the way that such a system, um, the way the system works, I think it is quite luxurious to think that you know people um, people like that will have to prove uh, to to the Victorian police that they are legitimate journalists when actually the actual reality is anyone in this kind of current climate can be a journalist and it's really not the Victorian police's job hmm. to police who is and who is not a journalist and I think it's just part of another way by which the um, by the which the Victorian police have tried to implement some kind of legislation or implement some kind of rule to actively kind of repress us. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's problematic the way that the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance has basically said, oh, we've come to an agreement with the police where if you've got your Media Entertainment Arts Alliance photo ID, then the police will recognise you as a journalist. Yeah, okay, that's great for MEAA members, but what about people who are a student or they're on Centrelink and for whom paying MEAA membership, which is, from memory, I used to be a member years ago when I was working as a, a crappy mobile wedding DJ and, and Mia helped me. I got a, I did a back pay claim against my employer at that time because they were scum and they were seeding my wages. I'm not anti MEAA, but I just don't think that MEAA should be advocating purely on behalf of members in this instance. They should be going into bat for all journalists, whether or not they are members of the MEAA, and saying, this is not cool. If you self-identify as a journalist, and if you're at a protest and you've got a high-vis vest or some other identifying um, piece of clothing on that says, hey, I'm a journalist, <laughs> don't beat the crap out of me and spray me with orange foam, that should be enough. Uh, it, and really, that's what it comes down to. The police want to be able to just pulverise people at protests and spray them in the face with orange foam with complete impunity, and they don't want the embarrassment of um, spraying journalists. So it's like, well, we're not—they're not happy with, um, you know, pleb journalists and and bloggers turning up and covering these protests, and uh, they. They basically want a license to intimidate um, journalists into not covering these protests. And the MEAA, I think, should really be a lot clearer about this. It's not just people with MEAA photo ID that should be able to cover protests and not get attacked by the pigs. <laughs> Any journalist should be allowed to do that. And the problem with this, um, I guess the problem with, with allowing the police to... Ha- um to have that kind of power 
is that it actually does lay the kind of foundation for the police to actually implement even more kind of repressive kind of rules in response, you know, just because we've gotten some kind of small, measly kind of concession from the Victorian police. Um, doesn't mean, and, um, doesn't mean that they won't just go back on their word and just implement something more repressive and, um, later on. Um, because, you know, they'll always use some kind of crisis. Um, for example, you know, um, if there was some kind of particular incident, um, or some tragedy, the police would probably exploit it to the, 10th degree and then uh, use it on as a basis to implement something kind of even more repressive by accepting this argument that, that the police have a right to determine who is and who is not a legitimate um, journalist. We're actually allowing a kind of foundation for more repressive sort of rules to be implemented in response. And of course, let's not kind of forget about how the Victorian police have kind of treated journalists um, in the past, especially I kind of remember, you know, what I witnessed at the Blockade IMARC protests, even the, even the journalists who are not sympathetic to the protesters at all, they weren't, um, they weren't free from, uh, from actually receiving pepper spray um, from the, from the Victorian police. So I think, you know, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's very questionable that the MEAA has gone into this sort of approach. And in fact, really the best approach would have been just asserting our people's right uh, to be journalists, um, asserting um, pe- um, the journalists' right to actually not have, not to give out their ID um, to, um, to, the, um, to the Victorian police. Because um, especially, you know, um, that also lays a kind of basis for intimidation as well, because let's say a journalist hypothetically um, covers something that the Victorian police is doing, um, something that they criticise the Victorian police for how they've handled a, a kind of process because the Victorian police have gone through a sort of thing of um, assessing everyone's sort of idea. That actually just allows a basis for the Victorian police because they are often a political institution to actually intimidate journalists. Mm. And we've already seen plenty of um, examples of Victorian police intimidating journalists. Um, who remembers the, some of the raids on journalists um, that w- that was instigated by the federal government and so on? So yeah. And in instances like this, I like to ask: Does it pass the communism test? <laughs> Which is, if uh, if some red baiting, scaremongering right wing scumbag was going, oh, in China the media aren't allowed to cover protests unless they get ticked off by the communist police force. If it would be outrageous you observing this in a quote-unquote communist country, whether China is communist is another <laughs> question that we can talk about on another day, but does it pass the communist or the Stalinist test? If it would be outrageous you observing this happening in a communist country, then it should be outrageous here as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think that's a that's a kind of like a very kind of good example, actually. <laughs> All right. Well, um, and do you have do you want to give a um that kind of quick kind of news update? Oh yeah. So uh, back on May twenty five, there was a explosion at the Kaleid Sea power station in Queensland in Biliwila, and. It caused rolling blackouts, and some photos have emerged this week of the um, power station, and one of the units at the power station is like thoroughly mangled and destroyed. There's a huge uh, sort of axle or shaft has come out of this thing and is lodged in the floor. There's shrapnel holes in the roof. 
this is quite rare in coal-fired power stations. When there's a fault or an error, they don't usually <laughs> explode. Fortunately, safety protocols were implemented. Apparently, the thing was making some funny noises, overheating a bit. People thought, eh, this is a bit funny. Uh, all the workers were evacuated. There's something like 260 workers on that site. They were all evacuated away from the power units. Uh, fortunately, that occurred because it then proceeded to explode. These things are very big and heavy. They spin at very high speed. Um, now, some initial investigations into what went wrong are showing that there was issues with the high-voltage circuit breakers, which is kind of like... If there's something wrong with your toaster at home where you put on the heater and the hairdryer at the same time and it blows the fuse, think of that, but massive for a power station. And there was issues with these high-voltage circuit breakers not only at the power station but potentially the big sort of uh, substation up the road. The circuit breakers there were not working properly either. So there's some emerging speculation as to what went wrong. This is interesting because it plays into the discussion about renewable energy. Coal-fired power stations are portrayed as super reliable and nothing ever goes wrong and you can trust them to always generate blah, blah, blah. This is one of the newest coal-fired power stations in Australia. It only opened in 2001. Um, I guess the difference is if you have a big solar farm or if you have a big wind farm and one of your wind turbines or one rack of solar panels stops working for whatever reason, you're only going to have a very small reduction in the overall output of your overall wind or solar farm. Whereas if you have a coal-fired power station like this, a very centralised supply of power, if something switches off, you have a very sudden loss of a large amount of power. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say what's happening in Queensland undermines this argument that coal is inherently more reliable than renewables. And it's going to be interesting to, I would say, watch this space because it looks like there's been some uh, serious problems, not just with the actual power unit that blew up, but with the circuit breakers in the, in the kind of macro level, big high voltage circuit breakers. It looks like there's been some pretty serious problems there that have contributed to this problem and to the big blackouts that followed. All right. Well, thanks, um, Zane, for that news update. Um, I'm just going to go play um, a quick um, announcement and we'll go to our second interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come smarter than Tricia Community Radio, please subscribe now. Just a meona ila ida Tricia Community Radio Araja Al Istrakal and Ningal Ungalin Samuhavanoli, Tricia Ray Kurt Kondir Kondir Kal, Indre Nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio I Gayaranin, or a Tangudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin, Himartanakrevetsek Iper Triciari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have Isaac Nellist from Green Left. 
Great. Um, Isaac has been writing regularly and covering um, the kind of issue of gig um, um, workers, um, i.e. those who work in the gig economy, including Uber Eats, um, Deliveroo, um, Menulog, and all sorts of the different sort of apps. That I, I can't keep up with all the, the different sort of gig economy work um, that's kind of around, but that, that's basically kind of the general kind of um, sense. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Isaac. Hey, Jacob. How are you going? It's great to be on the show. Yeah, so I guess maybe to kind of start off, I guess, a bit of discussion. Um, can you guess, give a guess a bit of an, before we go into some of the kind of updates, um, for some of the workers, can you tell us, I guess, give a bit of a general overview of some of the issues that, I guess, gig economy workers kind of face a kind of daily, kind of daily basis? Yeah, sure. So gig economy workers, uh, kind of often considered to be, uh, contractors rather than employees. So they don't get any, kind of working protections such as like minimum wage or sick leave or any kind of protection from unfair dismissal. So a lot of these workers are in very insecure positions and are kind of crucial to our kind of economy at the moment, especially over the um, COVID pandemic period. And as you're in Melbourne at the moment, I'm sure a lot of people are relying on food delivery and stuff to uh, get by. Um, But these workers are actually kind of being left behind by um, our current laws, which don't really give them any protections. So the big uh, companies like Uber, Deliveroo, Menulog, they all kind of have access to these workers who kind of are being treated really badly. And in last year, over a two-month period, there was actually five deaths um, of delivery riders. So that was a, a kind of a real tragedy that brought to light a lot of this um, mistreatment. Um, and the erosion of labour standards in the kind of gig economy in general. Mm. So it's not a great situation. And what can you tell us, I guess, about um, some of the kind of organising, I guess, that has been happening from some of these um, the, um, workers? Because um, there has been some positive developments that happened, like there was one um, positive development that happened in um Britain um, that basically declared that um, that I think Uber Eats or delivery drivers um, would no longer be declared contractors and would actually be recognised as workers. Um, what are what are some of the um, developments that are kind of been happening here in Australia? Yeah, so that was actually like a, a, a Supreme Court decision in in Britain that decided that Uber drivers are workers and not contractors. So in Britain, they have three categories of worker: they have contractors, workers, and employers um, employees. Um, so they've been given a uh, worker status, which gives you more rights than a contractor would get, but not quite as much as an, an employee. Whereas in Australia, we only have employees and contractors as the two major um, forms of work. Um, so the, the battle in Australia is really trying to get uh, gig economy workers recognised as employees. Um, so a recent win, uh, the Transport Workers Union has been uh, fighting for gig economy workers um, for the last few years, um, have kind of really taken up the, the cause. Um, just a few uh, weeks ago, a, a worker called Diego Franco, who worked for Menulog, um, he was uh, basically fired without, unfairly dismissed last year um, after working for Deliveroo for three years. He um, was fired uh, for delivering an order too slow. Then um, the Transport Workers Union has really uh, supported him taking the case to fair work, and he actually on May 18th won um, unfair dismissal uh, his unfair dismissal case. Uh, 
but the decision there is important because the claim his his uh, the case was decided based on the recognition that uh, he was an employee rather than a contractor. Um, so the Fair Work Commission decided based on kind of the control that Deliveroo has over their workers and had over Franco that um, he should be considered an employee rather than a worker. That's similar kind of um, importance of decision in the UK, uh, but obviously this is just a, a one-off um, Fair Work Commission case rather than an Australia-wide decision. Um, but this kind of really gives momentum to the campaign to kind of get these rights for these workers and regulate the gig economy. Um, Franco, he's also a member of the Delivery Riders Alliance, which is kind of a collective of people who work in food delivery and other delivery services, um, which are all uh, basically gig economy jobs. Um, and that's a, a collective for them to organise and kind of discuss just the difficulties of working in such a kind of individualised, atomized workforce where it's, it's hard to organise workers and unionise because everyone's working kind of basically on their own, um, riding around the streets uh, just with an app as your boss, basically. Um, but So that win has been great. And uh, the TWU is kind of picking out cases that they see uh, are winnable and supporting these workers um, in efforts to pressure the government to make some actual legislative changes and regulate the gig economy. Um, there's been a, a menu log has basically said they're going to trial treating their workers as employees, so um, having a minimum wage um, and granting more uh, working rights like uh, sick leave and, and such. Um, but the thing is that if they're the only ones to do it and Uber, Uber Eats and, and Deliveroo, if they don't also follow suit, then uh, menu logs obviously not going to stick to it because if they're going to see, well, the others are getting away with ripping off their workers. <laughs> Why can't we? Um, so it's, it's uh, crucial that the, the government kind of supports the, the companies like Menulog who are at least listening to workers. Um, the TWU, I spoke to the National Secretary, Michael Kane last week, and he said that uh, Hungry Panda is another delivery service that's been in discussion with the union and with workers about um, improving conditions. But um, so far, Uber Eats and Deliveroo have um, not been interested. Uh, so yeah, I want to I want to go back a bit backwards, actually a bit because um yeah, I think you've been kind of good kind of overview. And I guess reading from your Green Left um kind of article is um there was a kind of detail that kind of jumped at me, and that was in regards to one of the court rulings um around this um is that basically one of the kind of issues um with with the this whole the, one of the contradictions I think of gig economy work is um, basically they they say to you that you are all um, you're all your own boss you're all your own contractor yeah. you pick when you want to kind of work yet um, mm. Deliveroo for example and I'm pretty sure all gig economy kind of workers um, do um, workplaces do this they actually measure performance data they're collecting data and and, yeah. and so on and they're actually all having all this sort of performance evaluation built into the app in fact it's actually even more like compared to actually regular kind of workplaces, even though there's actually quite a large degree of control that bosses um, and managers try to have over workers, it actually uh, my my position is actually I would actually think that gig economy work is actually even more extreme than regular workplaces because of 
this yeah. inbuilt kind of rating system. And I kind of want to hear some of the contra- um, comments on that sort of contradiction with um, with this gig economy work. Mm, yeah, well, that's the thing is that's how they sell their uh, businesses. Like we're offering a flexible uh, way to work. You can work your own hours, blah, blah, blah. But it is true that they do c- overview all the staff. There's um, a lot of algorithms built into the app. I guess that's the, the the advantage for those businesses of having an app that is where all the work is tracked, basically, is they can see all the orders that have been made, the, um, if there's been an order that's been made slightly slow. And this is, like, if there's a s- slow order, that's not necessarily the fault of the worker. There's always a, a range of factors um, built into these deliveries that um, always, when it's looked at, they get ignored in favour of... <laughs> So the, the worker is more likely to get in trouble because there's things like you can't control traffic, weather, um, food at the at the restaurant being it being kind of prepared late or slow, and that, all that puts a lot of pressure on the worker to be to, to deliver fast and um, kind of take safety out of the equation. So that's the cause of a lot of um, injuries and the deaths last year were often down to the fact that. Workers feel ex- extreme pressure to get their food delivered um, within the, the really strict timeframes. Otherwise, they'll face penalties. Um, and that's the other thing is if you are found to be um, doing something, like if the, the algorithms find you're, you're delivering slow or there's some other kind of performance review kind of issue, um, there's not really like a right of reply. You don't get to speak to your boss and they can ask you like, Oh, what happened here? What happened here? It's it's um, basically like three strikes and you're out kind of situation. So um, people are just kicked off the app and basically fired um, without really getting a chance to either talk to talk to a boss or, or get um, any kind of compensation. Um, and that it's it's really a shame when like uh, the gig economy companies have. Had massive growth in the last um, couple of years, um, like more than doubled as a sector in Australia, and the workers aren't really getting any of that. Um, like back to them, it's still getting paid very uh, little. I believe it was um, found recently that they can be making as little as five dollars for a delivery. Um, so you're travelling um, sometimes quite a long distance on, on a bike in the cold or in the rain and only making about $5. It's like very uh, low pay. So um, all these factors and the fact that you can't really be considered, in my opinion, I wouldn't say that you're a, a, a business owner, small business um, kind of as Uber is trying yeah, to describe. You're, you're and delivery is trying to describe. You're a little boss. Like you can, yeah. <laughs> You can't show up to a restaurant and say, oh, hi, I'm just an uh, independent delivery rider um, (laughs) and send me to uh, different houses with food because, like, they'll just turn you away and say, like, go get on Uber Eats or something. Um, So the argument that there's no control from from the companies is just ridiculous, really. And I think that's what the recent decision with the Diego Franco case of the Fair Work Commission really unpicked was this kind of lie um, and this kind of mythology, really, that, that gig economy work is like freedom and flexibility, um, when really it's just a way to exploit more workers 
without um, having to pay them enough too much and without having to uh, really look after their working conditions either. Hmm. All right. Well, um, we're getting, um, I guess, a bit to the kind of end of our interview. Um, do you have any guess, any final comments you'd kind of like to make, Isaac? And oh yeah, you can also feel free to give a plug to any of the articles um, that you've written for Green Left on this subject. Yeah, for sure. I'll just, I'll just say there's, I think, quite an international pressure on uh, the gig economy. There's workers organising um, all around the world. There's been an article. Uh, in Green Left Online, I believe it's in next week's uh, physical edition, about um, workers organising in South America. Um, so that's great to see. And there's also, obviously, the British Supreme Court uh, decision and a bunch of um, campaigns across Europe, across America um, and Asia. Um, but, yeah, in Australia, uh, the TWU uh, campaign has been great. And I think if, if any... Uh, delivery workers are listening to this, I would highly uh, recommend getting in touch with them or joining the um, Delivery Riders Alliance on Facebook. Um, so anyone can join that and you can just uh, uh, join the Facebook page, which I believe is just called Delivery Riders Alliance. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, so, and the article, my most recent article about the Franco case will be in this week's, uh, be in next week's Green List. So uh, make sure to buy a copy of that as well. Right. Um, well, thank you um, very much, Isaac. Um, it's been a, definitely a very good um, discussion. So, yeah. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me on, Jacob. All right. Thanks, Isaac. All right. You're just listening. Um, um, we are just having a discussion with Isaac Nellist, um, who is um, a, chorus, uh, a regular writer for Green Left, and um, he's... Um, focus uh, of late has been on gig economy workers and some of the uh, updates um, that have been kind of happening kind of there. Anyway, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, now it is, I guess, time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, obviously, the Green Left Activist Calendar has been impacted by some of these kind of recent events with the lockdown, um, but I'll do my best to announce um, what's kind of coming up. Um, so this Tuesday, um, there's going to be an online forum organised by Green Left um, titled Why Israel is an Apartheid State, and that's going to be happening on Tuesday, June the 8th, 6.30pm um, via Zoom, and it's going to be featuring international guest speaker Jeff Halper, who is the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demo- 
demolitions and a supporter of the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel. So that means it's going to be happening via Zoom and you can get the Zoom link if you go up, um, go on the greenleft.org.au website. And then on Sunday, um, June the 13th, um, that if assuming restrictions ease, um, there is going to be um, a rally for Palestine. Um, so that's going to be happening on Sunday the 13th of January um, at 1 p.m. at um, yeah, basically at the at the at the State Library. So we'll see we'll see what um, what's going to be happening. Um, we'll give another update next Friday if um, nothing has kind of changed. Um, and now a few other kind of events to sort of highlight is um, there's going to be a world the World Refugee Day rally on permanent visas not discrimination that's going to be happening on Sunday June the 20th 2 p.m. at the State Library. Um, FreeCR's annual radio radiothon is going to be happening throughout um, June. In fact, our program is going to be happening kind of next um, um, Friday. Um, so I'm going to. Yeah, just make a kind of big of a plug that, you know, if you want to kind of support FreeCR and also support Green Left um, Radio, you can um, donate online at freecr.org.au or you could even call now at 94198377 or you can also send a, your cheque or money order made to FreeCR at PO Box 1277 Collingwood Vic 3066. Um, so, yeah, and then going into some of the other kind of events um, that might may or may not be happening in the future, depending on the restrictions. Um, there's going to be there um, there's going to be a protest um, Bacchus Marsh, no toxic soil. That's going to be happening at 10:30 a.m. Sunday Saturday June the 19th at 6:59 Bacchus Marsh Road in Bacchus Marsh. Um, and then yeah, I think that's I think that's got um, pretty much kind of it in terms of. Um, in terms of um, terms of kind of what's happening, so yeah, unless there's some other things you want to kind of mention, Zane. No, I think that's uh, that's a wrap. Okay, well, I might just go. I might we might just use the opportunity to play um, a quick um, announcement, um, and then yeah, we might go. We'll probably have a few minutes until our next interview, and so maybe we'll give give a short news update. So yeah. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and I um, just want to give um, just a point, um, 
people's attention, listeners' attention. Um, we won't be able to talk about this in great detail, but there is a report. Um, we did a bit of an interview uh, about it last Friday, um, but the weapon there, there was a big um, over the week, um, over the past week in Brisbane, there was a, a protest against um, the Weapons Expo, um, land for, um, which was um, titled land, the Land Forces Exhibition. Um, so from June 1st um, to the 3rd, Green Left kind of um, reported that there was a rainbow coalition of First Nations people, peace, climate and human rights defenders. And of course, this just the disruption involved a week-long um, festival resistance, including an Indigenous sacred fire gathering, workshops, forum, um, music, dance and street theatre. Um, the protests included a welcome gathering around the sacred fire in Mosgrave Park. Um, and of course, one of the, I guess, one of the things, um, even before, I guess, the expedition began, um, there was blockades against, um, armed vehicles, um, from being bumped into the convention center. They also, um, there was also organized a tour of weapons manufacturers in Brisbane, including, um, civil disobedience actions on May the, um, 31st. And I guess one of the more interesting kind of things that sort of happened that, um, Green Left kind of reports is, um, former federal defense minister turned arms industry lobbyist Christopher Pine turned up at the land forces arms exhibition on June 5th, 1st. And of course, what ha- even happened is the protest organizer, um, um, Margaret, um, Pesteris was arrested for standing in front of Pine's car as he tried to enter. And of course, six others were also kind of arrested. And so, yeah, that's, a that's just a bit of a, I guess, a kind of summary about, um, some of the some of the um of the protests that kind of happened against that the land forces kind of expo and yeah I think um FreeCR has been trying to play I think as much of the footage and coverage from that on other kind of programs and maybe we might do um an update on I guess a bit of a debrief from the organisers um afterwards on how the protests overall went and what could be done next so yeah mm. but yeah shout out to all those activists who are up there blockading that uh, disgusting conference of uh killing machines sales festival it's disgusting so yeah good to see those all those activists from different uh organizations standing staunch all right well i'll just go play um a quick announcement um you're listening to green left um radio the black lives matter movement is not going away here or overseas It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Solidarity Breakfast. Your Saturday morning serving of union and working news. Current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have Nora Mansour, who is um, a, Palestine, a Palestinian community organiser, activist, educator, political analysis, and um, part of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Um, so yeah, good morning, Nora. Oh, sorry. Oh, oops. Sorry. Good morning, Nora. We just had a. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, we just didn't hear you before because I forgot to um click something. So that's all good. All right. So no um, good. Um, so Nora, I, I guess maybe to kind of I guess start off kind of discussion. I mean, part of um having you on our program is we kind of wanted to get a bit of a kind of an update, I guess, and maybe I guess a summary. Um on, I guess, the current, I guess, the sort of current kind of situation in Palestine, and then maybe we can go in talking about some of the campaigning that is going to be going, um, that is going to be happening even while in lockdown. So, yeah. Sure. So currently we just, uh, as, as everyone knows, we just came out of uh, um, very tough couple of weeks in Palestine, um, specifically in Gaza and Jerusalem, but also um, uh, in the rest of the historical Palestine. Um, uh, you know, Israeli attacks in Gaza uh, have um, caused massive destruction for civilian infrastructure. Um, as over 200 people have been killed, 75 of whom are children. Um, at the moment, Gaza is trying to recover from these attacks. Um, and and um, in Jerusalem, currently, as we've also seen, there's been a big movement um, um, in support of the people in Sheikh Jarrah, who are um, basically fighting, battling to stay in their homes. Um, and um, uh, there's been massive uh, support, that, as we've seen worldwide, uh, for the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, um, basically who are, um, once again, they are up against Israeli policies that are not recent. This is not recent as we all know what has been happening in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, it is these evictions are um, a part of a wider policy um, that is targeted at Palestinians uh, and to, dis- to basically dispossess Palestinians and um, forcefully evict them, evict them from their lands. Um, as we, you know, we all know this uh, has been going on for the last 73 years, um, and we can see that this ongoing ethnic cleansing. Um, manifests not just only in Sheikh Jarrah, but also in other parts of Jerusalem. For instance, currently this is happening in Silwan. Um, um, but at the moment, um, uh, the Israeli court is deliberating the next um, step in terms of what uh, that eviction would look like and where it, or when it's going to take place. Um, so we do need to stay vigilant in terms of what is going on in Jerusalem. Yeah, and um, yeah, you just mentioned, I guess that, and I guess I want to kind of get find out what what are kind of the implications, I guess, because I mean, I noticed that the Free Palestine Melbourne event um is going to be focusing on that particular key um um that Supreme kind of court kind of proceedings, and I guess what are some of the what are some of the political kind of implications around that, I guess, in kind of more detail. Um, so, you know, because what happened is that the Israeli um, court, uh, based on people's response and the support that uh, Sheikh Jarrah has received, not just worldwide, but also in Palestine, we've seen people rally in support of uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem, in Gaza, but also in 1948 territories, also known as Israel today. Um, so there was um, protests across 
the country, uh, all over the, the historical Palestine. Palestinians in, in 1948 also staged um, uh, one of the most successful uh, strikes uh, to basically put pressure on Israeli economy as a strategy to, to alleviate the pressure from Gaza um, and, and um, uh, Jerusalem at that point. So uh, all of this happening actually um, has brought the Israeli court to realize that they need to um, um, extend uh, or not to, to act on their decision to evict people at this stage because um, this is going to lead for this is going to lead to a further escalation. Um, so currently the, we're still waiting to see what's happening, but we know that other parts in Jerusalem are also facing the same uh, threat as Sheikh Jarrah. And I guess going into kind of the next, um, my ne- kind of next question, I kind of want to hear, I guess, some of your, I want to hear, I guess, some of your personal thoughts on, I guess, some of the, the international kind of solidarity that has kind of happened around, um, all this is basically, I mean, I've kind of observed that there's been massive kind of protests in the United States in support of kind of Palestine. Um, there's also been, um, quite significant sort of protests in Britain. Um, and of course, those are all kind of like some of the hotspot sort of countries in terms of the countries that actually prop up, I guess, the Israel kind of state. And I guess also want to hear, and there's also also been also the, some of the developments that have happened in France as well, where, I mean, in France, um, protests um, in Palestine were effectively criminalised by the French government, yet that didn't stop people from turning up in, I guess, kind of massive kind of numbers. So I guess, yeah, I want to hear some of your perspective and comments on some of the international solidarity that has been observed around the world in support of Palestine. Sure. Um, Yes, as you mentioned yourself, there's definitely a massive shift when it comes to public opinion and public support uh, for Palestinians, um, as we've seen across uh, the globe. Uh, And this is a testament of the hard work that Palestinians and their allies have been doing um, in the last uh, decade or even more, I would say. Um, it's also a result of uh, the fact that people now have free access to information and they can see what is happening, for instance, in Sheikh Jarrah, directly from people living in Sheikh Jarrah, such as uh, Al-Kurd family, uh, Muna and her brother Muhammad. So we've seen that um, phenomena of like um, citizen journalists also play out in Gaza, where people in Gaza are able to um, deliver to the world what is happening directly through their phones and lenses and um, and use it uh, basically uh, spread it through social media platforms, which also is questionable as well, these platforms, because they have also been censoring Palestinian content. So we need to keep in mind that when we're what we see, even what we see on social media is not the full story because a lot of it has been censored. Um, but so, so, yes, this international solidarity wave is definitely heartening. And it's definitely um, uh, putting a lot of pressure, as we've also seen on, on Israeli officials, um, since some of them have targeted uh, people who um, uh, shared their support for Palestinians. Some of them are celebrities, and we've seen them also being target of the Israeli defense uh, force spokespeople or, or their social media um, uh, campaigns. Um, so, as I said, this is uh, um, this is not a result that happened over, overnight. This is a hard uh, and continuous work and effort that is 
constantly, continuously uh, is being made by Palestinians and their allies. Um, when it comes to France, and I, I think this is uh, France is a, a case where, um, yeah, the, the, uh, in terms of right wing uh, right wing government and. Um, um, like I position that as uh, under that, that umbrella, where uh, we've seen um, an, a global shift um, in, the, in the last, uh, would, I would say, decade um, for people on the, on the government level, on the political level, for governments that are more right-wing. Um, France definitely also fits uh, under that description. Uh, this is not the first time that France tried to limit. Palestinian solidarity and basically censor it and ban it. This is um, we all know that France has um, banned uh, BDS and attempts or calls for boycott, um, uh, divesting and sanctions. So um, yeah, I, I, but I think I think that's not going to be something that um, by the end of the day um, the, the French government government or authorities are going to be successful in because. Um, at some point, the, the, the movement on, on the ground is much more bigger uh, and stronger uh, to be censored um, and, and uh, basically blocked or banned. Hmm. And now it's probably a good sort of time to kind of go into um, the Austra- I guess the Australian government and also the kind of Australian kind of media kind of response because I guess I want to kind of hear your comments because basically, I mean, since... Um, since these recent kind of protests and, of course, the recent sort of invasion um, bombings of Gaza by the Israeli government, the, both both the major parties of um, have basically, you know, come in in support of Israel. Um, and, of course, the ABC, our state broadcaster, have also had very, I think, questionable kind of coverage of everything that has happened in um, in Palestine in the past several, um, month. And so I kind of want to hear, I guess, some of your comments on some of those things. Yeah, um, look, this is uh, the government and the media response um, here in Australia. I mean, I, I, I can't say we're surprised because we always knew where um, these two blocks actually stand when it comes to the Palestine-Israel um, issue or question. Um, and unfortunately, uh, yes, it's... It, it's a stance that um, should be uh, concerning and many Australians should be worried about because um, when we have leaders in this country who are willing to support uh, um, the, the killing of children and the bombing of civilians and position it or frame it as self-defense, that, that becomes really problematic, not just for the Palestinian community in Australia, but basically for everyone in Australia. Um, because when they say Israel has the right to defend to defend itself, what they're saying is that Israel has the right to continue with its attacks on unarmed civilians and children in Gaza who have been living under siege for the last 14 years and have no shelters and have no safe spaces to hide in. When they say Israel has the right to defend itself, they mean that Israel has the right to carry on its ethnic cleansing policy, its uh, dispossession of people uh, in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah. So this is definitely policies that are highly problematic, as you can see, because this is not only a violation of Palestinians' human rights and, and sovereignty um, and their rights to live, um, you know, in peace on their ancestral land. This is also a violation of international law, um, as we know. Um, and, and this has been these these acts by Israel have been identified as war crimes by the international court by the ICC. So. 
we have governments and politicians who are supportive of that. So that's really um, concerning. Now, but with the um, with the Australian media, and I think also it's, it's important to look at the Australian media um, and compare it globally. Even globally, the Australian mainstream media is lagging behind when it comes to the Palestine and Israel issue. We've seen many cases of misinformation. People are being misguided to think that this is a conflict between two equal parties. People are being guided to think that um, uh, you know, this is because of uh, X or Y or Z. This is because Palestinians are protesting or this is because Palestinians are. So the, the whole coverage is very de- decontextualized. It, the coverage starts when Palestinians uh, retaliate. Um, this is a clear uh, textbook case of misinformation and, and misguiding. Um, basically, uh, we've seen also re- most recently the ABC kind of banning people from using the word apartheid when describing uh, the, the situation in Palestine or Israeli apartheid. And, and their justification of that was just simply um, very... <laughs> I don't know what how else to describe it other than um, very insulting to people's intelligence, actually. When they say uh, it, it's not apartheid because apartheid only happens in South Africa, and this is not yet... This is an opinion, even though... For them, facts now, uh, as they are described, not just, but I mean, Palestinians have been saying that this is apartheid for many decades. But now we have um, uh, leading uh, Israeli organizations such as B'Tselem, international organizations such as Human uh, Rights Watch, saying that, yes, this is a clear case, a textbook case of apartheid. It has it. According to the definition, it fits all of of the definitions and and criteria. Uh, But... Uh, that's not apparently that's not enough for the ABC because facts are opinion for them. So they're saying that this is not this is debatable and this is contestable. And because there's a debate around facts, that doesn't make them facts, which is just ridiculous. Um, so yeah, so it's quite disappointing that um, we still have media outlets who are unable to live up to the professional standards of journalism. Um, that are just misguiding and spreading misinformation when it comes to this very important issue. And um, we're running a bit out of time now, but I guess I, I want to leave you the kind of opportunity, um, and maybe to sum it a bit up. What can you tell us about some of the upcoming solidarity kind of activities? And I, from my understanding, you're also you're part of both Free Palestine Melbourne and um, APAN. Um, so yeah, feel free to tell us about you know what people can do um, to support the Palestinian struggle and any sort of upcoming kind of events that are coming up? Yeah, there's many ways in which people can actually support the Palestinian struggle for justice, uh, liberation and freedom and equality. And that is, uh, you know, through um, you can follow uh, these um, Palestine Solidarity Organization's website, uh, such as APAN, Australian Palestine Advo- Advocacy Network, such as uh, Free Palestine Melbourne, and among others. Um, there's um, petitions that are being circulated to put pressure on um, both uh, federal and state governments to end their complicity with um, uh, Israeli war crimes. Uh, that is something that you can consider um, as a supporter to add your name, to put more pre- help us put more pressure <laughs> on that front. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's many activities, forums, events that are being organized. Um, I have to say that the movement has been very active and very proactive um, uh, recently in the last month, and that's been uh, the support that we have seen from um, everyone 
basically across the country has been very heartwarming. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Nora. Um, well, we're getting to the uh, end of the program. So, yeah, we'd like to thank you um, for being on our program. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. And, yeah, we'll definitely be promoting any sort of um, upcoming Palestine activities um, for our program in the future. So, yeah, thank you very much, Nora. Thank you very much. You have a lovely day. Okay. All right. Um so we're getting into kind of the end of the program and yet yeah, we're just talking, um, speaking to Nora about the, some of the current updates to the Palestine, um, campaign. And, um, just a note that, um, she will also be speaking at, um, an upcoming forum organized by Green Left at 6.30 p.m., um, this Tuesday, um, which will be online and you can get all the details of that event, um, on the Green Left website at greenleft.org.au. Anyway, um, me and I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, and yeah, stay tuned for next Friday where we'll be doing our special Radio Fon program. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Au revoir. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from their slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap